It's obvious that design is all around us, but how designers think through their work is often a mystery. Yet, understanding that process can fuel our own curiosity and creativity. Adam Fromey hosts Thinking Through Design as a series of in-depth discussions to reveal the designer's mindset and realize its value. One of the reasons I enjoy our conversations is because our professional background, while it's very different, mm -hmm. seems to have a lot in common. And I think there's something there that ultimately has led us both to put an emphasis on blending practice and education in our current work. Yeah, definitely. So I think a good place for us to start um, is for you to share a bit about how you blend these two roles and then we can kind of go backwards to what led you to that point. Yeah, I think, you know, when we think about blending, when I started at Ohio State, it was always really important for me that research, we're at a tier one research institute, is not done in a vacuum and it's not just disseminated to other researchers, but that for us as designers, it is about the practice and what we do makes an impact on people and people's lives. So it's important that when I came into an academic position, entered this academic world, that I bridge the two because the research to me has to be activated. And I think that's as we think about like design thinking, design doing, it's about the activation of those ideas that research that's really important to me. And so um, I think it's important to constantly be blending back and forth. So that way the research is applied and it actually makes it into practice, improves practice, improves spaces, ultimately as an interior designer, improves the spaces and the lived environments that people are engaging with every day. And yeah, I think, you know, I came from practice. I'd been practicing for two years before I came to Ohio State, but I've always had a foot in both, either as an adjunct while I was practicing full time or as a consultant or design practitioner while I was teaching full time. You know, I think we live in this gig society now anyway. So yeah. being my of my generation, we've always had to get over these hurdles of, you know, the recession and, you know, things that have happened over the last 20 some years um, in society and, and the economy. So. I've always had a foot in both. So for me, it was just really natural to bridge and blend the two. And I always thought like as a as a student, my best teachers had some practical experience too because it felt grounded in reality. Absolutely. I think since design is an applied science, right? there's a very natural bridge, at least how I look at the world, of the work that we're doing in universities it can't just sort of live in that vacuum. Right. It has to be sort of applied because that's testing is an incredibly important part of designing mm -hmm. and testing with people because that's ultimately who we're designing for. Mm -hmm. We need that completion to the process. We need to see how it works when yeah. people are involved that weren't a part of the project, when people pick it up and hold it and walk through the space. Right. And so there is, it's sort of, bringing projects to that ultimate end that doesn't happen if it just stays in academia as a rendering or as a um, theory. Exactly. As an idea. 
a paper that might only get read, you know, a couple times. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, That's really important work. And, you know, that secondary research, of course, comes into our own primary research and secondary that we're writing to. But it's about taking, for me, that next layer of testing. And I think what's interesting is you. I like the word that you use, testing, because testing, most people think of tests as like an experiment. And then you get the results and then you come back and you revise, like from a scientific method, right? Because you said, you know, we're in the arts and sciences. And so, but for design, test is like, for me, architecturally, it's it's a built space that could live on for five, 10, 100 years. So what's important is that while it's a completed project, quote unquote, it's still a test and you have to learn and be reflective on that. Because if we think about it, really, our test is the longevity of our career. And it's this constant iteration and testing and learning and applying and um, measuring the impacts that we've had in practice, in the the practice or the test or the the space that we build, the product that we create, whatever it is that we're designing, and then bringing it back for the next iteration of a similar right. Everything's going to be unique and different, but um, we still need to learn from the one before and learn from history. Absolutely, you know, and I think that's part of what um, you said. We we talked about getting outside the vacuum of academia too, and and as a land grant institution, I think it's really important for us in the prof- professional or practical fields that we do step outside of the academic environment to um, improve society, improve the lives of others and our communities. Ultimately, that's why the land grants institutions were started. Yeah. We often all sort of use the shorthand of testing because it fits nicely into the story after the fact Mm -hmm. when we're explaining it. And I think most of our methodology, we're a better word might be an evaluation mm-hmm. of just, it's taking time, dedicating time to evaluate what's working, what's not. And that right. sort of leads to more opportunities for improvement, for changing it, mm-hmm. versus just sort of a test that either you pass or you fail. Right. And, and it has this sort of absoluteness to it. I've never... Well, it's because designers live in the gray and not yeah. the black and white, right? And I'm sure you've talked about this on other podcasts, but, you know, it's that fuzzy front end. It's the gray space. It's the possibilities that we live in rather than a right or wrong um, because it's can be completely subjective to each person's lived experience, whether it's right for them or wrong for them. Um, and so it's hard for us as designers um, but I think that's part of the greatest challenge is to try to figure out what is best for each solution to um, to fit all if or most of the people that are going to experience it. So we can't hit every single target. But Yeah, and those right and wrongs, I think the gray comes from averaging those out because right. we're dealing with complex problems that have many micro little things happening right. at the same time. And so some will be yes, some will be no. Some will be yes. And different people have those different opinions, mm-hmm. which are absolute. Right. But we are pulling back far enough away to where the, the average or sort of the accumulated data points right. are gray. Well, and that's what we're going to dive into, I think, more of is the strategy yeah. piece of it too here in a bit. And, and, yeah. and being able to get into that. You did the... Start off talking about some of your time in practice. Yeah. Um, and I know for myself and for a lot of people I talk to, those first few years feel like being pushed into the deep end of the pool. 
<laughs> because school is so different from that first job. Um, and, and so I'm curious to hear from you what, what, what hit you the hardest? And to follow that up, what was it like working with clients for the first time? Mm. You know, I think maybe because um, I went to an undergraduate program that had an internship, I never really felt like I was thrown in the deep end because I was always, once again, going to school and then practice and then school and then practice. So, On your weekly basis, sort of like having... Well, semester to semester, okay. um, quarter to quarter at that time, a year, long time ago. Um, but yeah, it was like a, you know, we had co-op. So it was a requirement that we would spend a quarter at a firm. And my first one, my I think the first job I ever had the throwing in the deep end was actually not the job per se, but the location because I jumped from Ohio to Seattle, not knowing a single person. So I think sometimes getting us outside of our comfort zone with regard to society or culture or place is actually the thing that's going to impact our work the most um, because it's a different perspective, different lived experience. And for me at that time, that was the first time I'd ever heard of sustainability like it just wasn't a thing really except for recycling here in the Midwest. And so to go to somewhere like Seattle where it was ingrained in the decisions that they were making even in the early 2000s, that was revolutionary to me. And so that was really what I was thrown into the deep end of trying to learn and sparked ultimately where I am today. I don't think I would be researching or as passionate about sustainable design strategy um, if I hadn't had that very first internship, and then that's what led to grad school on the West Coast at you know at a university that focuses on that, and then ultimately why I came back to the Midwest because I wanted to bring that knowledge here. Um, so I think that is a little bit of what you're asking, but I think yeah. working with clients, I actually I like working with clients. I think most people when they think of interior design, they think I just came from an appointment and someone's like, oh, so like residential decor. And that's not what we do per se, mostly. And I've never practiced in residential because I like my client to not be a personal position where someone wants something specific for themselves. Their likes, their, their wants, likes, their, their dislikes, because that comes back to the black and white. Mm -hmm. And it's never been about my likes or dislikes, because again, that would be my personal blacks and whites. And for me, working with a client is about trying to understand who their, the clients and users are, and what's best for them. Not me, not the client, but the end users as a whole. And so it has that holistic approach to it. And I think for me, that's what's what's exciting is like trying to uncover the experiences, the psychology that's best for those people and how we can bring through designs those spaces to life that are going to be best served for them. Did it feel like you were prepared for that first conversation early in your career as like, it's not about you, it's about them. Or was that a learning curve? Uh, a learning curve, I think, for sure. Um, I think we, in our department, do a different approach than when I went to school. Um, and I think that's part of the reason I teach the way I teach is for that exact reason, is to make it about, and even grading, for example, we're in the midst of like about to grade. 
when you take the subjectivity out of it, it's about, well, did you develop the right solution based on the research that you did, based on the thought process that you went through, the insights that you gathered, and the strategy that you ultimately created? Did you then translate that strategy into design intention, and then ultimately design of the space itself? And so then I'm not subjectively grading whether I like their end result or not. It's whether did you apply what you set out to do in the appropriate way. Um, and I think that that's, that's what gets me excited about design in general and design process in general. It's like, let's take the subjectivity, the likes, the dislikes out of it. And you know there are things that are trendy and that's important to some regard. Um, but it's ultimately about how you marry the things that are um, movements you know, macro trends versus micro and how those macro long-term movements are going to shape the spaces that we do applied to and coupled with all the insights and strategy of the users we, we are designing for. Yeah, we, we certainly are, are keeping in mind the aesthetic quality. Mm. And there has to have that sort of underpinning. But that's very different than sort of personal preference of color right. combination in, in an instance. Well, and even personal, you know, even aesthetics are driven by scale, hierarchy, the elements and the principles of design. And so is it creating balance? And then you layer in color theory. And so I think for anyone that's not a designer listening to this, there's such complexity and order and nuances and layers um, to design that they don't necessarily take into consideration or have thought would be applied to this, to what we do. Can you expand on that uh, or at least sort of give us a little more insight into what you mean by that? I am sitting across from you and I know what you mean. Right. But I think for most people, when they hear color theory, they see that as an independent thing of, of looking at these different color combinations of primary or secondary colors. And you have this mm -hmm. sort of um, what we were all experienced maybe in primary education. The color Designer, wheel. Yeah, the color wheel. Designers look at it differently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so just share a little bit more about what that means for you. Yeah, so obviously the foundation is the color wheel, and that's what we're working off of. But, you know, there are things like Pantone's color of the year that comes out, and that's a reaction to societal trends or movements that are occurring globally. And I think that's important because those things are kind of built up over a series of years, or even things like the evolution of millennial pink. I think that's a good one to explain because millennial pink, you think of it as like it came out of the millennium, um, but then it has still made its relevance. I was just watching um, something today about pink Christmas trees. And it was interesting because it has never really died away. That's, again, a macro color that went from millennial pink, quote unquote, and the blurring of um, uh, gender acceptance of color, where in the last hundred or so years, pink has been associated as a feminine color. And that masculine femininity of color has changed because of the way society has changed and the approach to that color. And then we had millennium pink come on. And then we had rose gold with the iPhone come up. And then now, um, and then we had rose quartz as a Pantone color of the year. I think it was 2016 or 17. 
Um, and then we also are now seeing the, with the Barbie movie coming out, the resurgence of that pink coming back. And through that whole like last decade plus of evolution of just one single color, we've seen it coupled with other things like um, with with a darker color like a black or something or we're partnered with other metallics. And so now you're getting into some of these nuances and that's we're just talking about one single color, which is fascinating to think of like color having history. And then, of course, you can go back to Joseph Albers work in the field of art, Um, Annie Albers, his wife with textile design out of the Bauhaus. So there's this long history associated with color and people's reaction. And then you fast forward to like, not even really fast forwarding, but um, those are the types of things we talk about in the materials and methods class that I teach with regard to the color theory lectures, but then you jump to lighting design, a very technical field people would think of, you know, electrical engineers, et cetera. But then we're talking about how our eyes and our brain receive color and how the color temperature of light impacts our emotional well-being, our physical well-being, and how um, daylight simulation can actually improve our wellness, and that taps into theories of biophilia. So that's where we're getting into multiple complexities and layers, whether it's a societal color component that impacts, you know, more of an aesthetic choice, or whether it's actually biological. To say nothing of the temperature of the light that you're looking at the pink in, that could shift it right. brown, or, or shift it in this huge totally. other. And the two are intrinsically laced. Yeah, exactly. And I I did a whole research project on that um, about 10 years ago, looking at how the color temperature of light renders materials differently and how people and different generations perceive that and their opinions of it. And it was really fascinating. Yeah, so it starts to build this web, as you're talking, Mm -hmm. of how these individual decisions have a pull on all of these other decisions mm-hmm. that, that start to show or, or reveal some of what the designer is doing in practice right. of, of managing all these different things of when you're talking about color, you have to talk about lighting. Right. When you're talking about lighting, you have to talk about the material. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about the material, you have to talk about the form. And, and so all of those and things And the sensory perception, to, yeah. the touch of it, the sound of it. Um, I mean, we're sitting in a room that's acoustically isolated for our purpose, but that's because of the materials that have been applied to the room in order to do that and achieve it. So that there's another technical layer to that, too. And, you know, it's it's interesting because that's what we as designers bring as an expertise to the table. And so, you know, I think there's been a lot of conversation about designing for versus designing with. I think it's both. We can't have one or, or the other because it's important to balance um, experience and emotion with function and um, the technicality. And so like we as designers bring this wealth of knowledge of the color theory and all of these nuanced layers to the table, but it's working with other people as the end users and their own opinions and percep- not opinions, perceptions, um, needs, desires, values coupled together that actually make the design Um, strategy and then the implementation executable yeah needing the the input from the client on the front end right right they're they're informing and certainly affecting and and giving direction Mm -hmm. to the project 
Mm -hmm. but it does take sort of the, the technical layer that's more internalized from the designer of mm -hmm. knowing which levers to pull, right? Totally. <laughs> you know, in, in the brain as to being able to produce something that the client can react to or respond to. And yeah. that sort of creates that sort of shortened feedback loop, right, to where we can do that faster and faster. Totally. And I think a, a good example is actually a project that's just about to open um, is that we started in design research um, with a group of my students doing research for a space on campus. And then from that research, we, you know, did co-design workshops with end users. And from that, we developed design strategies that the architect of record then worked with me to implement. And it's things like the strategy was creating visual interest um, and stimulus in order to create higher productivity. That's what the, the end user insight gave us. But what does visual interest really mean? And so it's important then for us to say, okay, scientifically, we can learn from biophilia, and biophilia also gives us insights into fractal research, and fractals are a specific pattern, um, geometric, mathematical pattern language derived from nature that have then been translated into materials. So it creates visual interest. It achieves what the end users wanted. But we also have the science to back it up to say, okay, if I choose this material, then it is known to one, achieve what the end users want from visual interest, but two, it's actually going to um, create relaxation and calming in order to allow reduced anxiety for higher productivity. So it's the both mm -hmm. together, Absolutely. which is pretty cool. I'm really excited to hear about the sort of what you're doing in the classroom, but I feel like we're missing a piece of the puzzle. Okay. And when you're it's really asking, how did you develop this way of working? Because you're giving us some examples of, of now. Mm -hmm. But we had to get to now from where? <laughs> and, and I think a lot of us as designers, especially when we're in practice or even just in work, it doesn't have to be practice. Um, we develop our own strategy mm -hmm. um, for how we manage all of that complexity, how we... Mm -hmm. work through it what what decisions maybe do we make first and, and whether that's oh I need to have some series of interviews or I need to start just coming up with my own ideas first or what is that yeah. um, and so I'm interested for you was was that the case for you of of being able to develop a clear-cut strategy or was did was it more responsive to the need I think ultimately it actually comes back to my undergraduate education um, at that time, I had many faculty, not at this institution, um, at a different school, who were really aesthetically driven and their opinion driven and was very subjective. And I didn't always want to do exactly what they wanted me to do. And so in order to back up my decisions, that's where I first started exploring what is a strategic approach and how can I make this rational and intentional and strategic rather than just, I like this, I like that, you like this, you like that. How can you prove to them right. that a different decision might be better? Exactly. So I think it started there, maybe slightly rebellious, mm -hmm. like rebelling against them. And I'm going to be like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I'm going to show you why I'm going to prove you wrong. And that just sort of rebellious nature kind of then carried into everything. And it also sparked why I wanted to be a teacher. 
um, because I wanted students to be able to explore and have that mindset that's client-driven and user-centered-driven. And so I think that's where it started. And then um, I was very fortunate that I think it's interesting. Um, I practice primarily in the area of like retail design and brand strategy. And we kind of overlap a little bit in that brands, brand aspect yes. of things um, professionally, you and I. But so there is an interesting approach and difference between the way in which traditional architecture and tier design firms practice retail design versus the way an agency or retail design agency firm practices. And one is more um, aesthetic driven or maybe trend driven. Um, and there's and neither is right or wrong. It's also cultural. Um, like uh, friends in Brazil or in Europe are also going to be more of an artistic approach to retail experience. Whereas on the agency side, it is more rooted in business, marketing, consumer insights, and then that translates into consumer strategy and that translates into design strategy. So having practiced more on the agency side, um, it was more rooted in that methodology of doing user insights, secondary research, user insights, um, translating that into um, non, non-building specifics, but more of a universal set of parameters mm. uh, um, or strategies that then could be applied into any physical space, scaled up, scaled down, um, because it's then really about the user's experience, the user's journey through that experience. And I think that even if I if I reflect back, that even goes back to why ultimately I focus more on interior design than architecture, even though I have an architecture master's and undergrad. I also have an interior design undergrad and technical teaching certificate in interior design for sustainability. And the reason I do more in interiors than architecture is for that reason, because um, we just I just said user journey. And if I think back to something Hank said when I was trying to decide, do I want to apply to architecture or interiors for undergrad? And it was, he said that architecture is the sculpture in the landscape that brings you to the front door. But it's interior design that holds the hand of the user and walks them through the unraveling journey and story of the experience of space. And that to me is very human. It's tactile. It's emotional. It's responsive. Um, and so I think that's really important in that human-driven mindset has been embedded for 20-plus years um, from the beginning of my first quarter at school to the work I'm doing now as a researcher doing user-driven research or insights. Yeah, definitely. I can see how you would gravitate towards going in the one door. And what you start talking about with this, um, some of the parameters that maybe the firm developed of of building those sort of non-specific guidelines. Was that more in an effort to steer the project or make the decision-making process simpler? Um, how, how are those being used within the scope of a project? It's setting up the guardrails without constructing a box. You know, we okay. always say design, outside, you know, think outside the box, right? Um, but I think you can still have guardrails. And what that does is it allows, I found, especially as I was mentoring junior designers in the process, is that when you develop strategies, it still allows for creative exploration and iteration. It just sets up a North Star to guide you 
um, or a series of North Stars that are guiding you. And it allows you to have those guardrails so that you're not spinning out. And it allows, because I notice sometimes when we just said, you know, go, go think or, you know, go explore, go ideate, you know, two weeks, go wild. (laughs) Two weeks later, you've got, you know, from A to Z and off into another stratosphere entirely. And it's not relevant. You've just wasted two weeks. So by setting things up, and I even find it's the same case in the classroom, we spend a lot of time in any of the studios I teach on the front end because once the strategy is developed, it's just about finding how you scale it up, scale it down, and apply it to the details and make those decisions. Because then that's where some of the aesthetic choices come in or the color theory comes in or the pattern language comes in because now you're applying those extra layers to the strategies to say I'm going to choose this organic pattern versus this um, pixelated pattern or this geometric pattern or linear pattern, right? So you have those four choices, but you come back and you say, okay, well, it actually is calling for an organic pattern. And now I can choose within, you know, the 20,000 organic patterns that are out there, you know, cause it's a way of limiting decisions and setting a path, um, versus, you know, going down the yellow brick road versus the red brick road or the white brick road or the black brick road. You know, it's like, how do you make those choices? Two important things that you're just talking about. One is that series of North stars that you're describing. I, I think that's a really important component when you're working through the design process because it prevents you from either just going too far into the micro and that's sort of where you could easily spend two weeks totally. or two weeks into the abstract. Right. And, and you start getting this very esoteric mindset right. where you're where you're just kind of floating away. Right. Uh, of having that benchmark that sort of keeps your eye on the prize uh, right. as to the directionality of this. And so it's not aimless. It can be exploratory. It can be purposeful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's one thing. And purposeful the, is a good word to use, right? Yeah. That's why it's strategic is that it has intention. It has purpose. It's not It's not wondering. Abstract. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the other thing that I think this strategy topic that you're, you're leading us into, it allows the decision-making process to slow down. And it allows the decision-making process to build upon itself. I think Mm -hmm. oftentimes, something I notice, especially for people new to design, they feel like the problems are getting thrown at them. And so they're just kind of quickly responding to, oh, even if it's something as simple as designing a poster. Oh, it needs to be blue and black and circles and triangles. And, and right. they're kind of just trying to make all of these decisions at once. And that's a recipe for disaster <laughs> in most cases, especially if you're new yep. to design. But it would be the same way if you were cooking a cake or baking a cake. Absolutely. And you were just throwing stuff on into the cake. It would just come out tasting disgusting. Absolutely. But having that strategy gives you a way into the problem where mm-hmm. – you can be intentional about sort of the level at which you're making the decision. And then you can, since you've intentionally made that decision, you can look back on it to be able to make future decisions based on that versus that sort of knee-jerk reaction that I was describing earlier. Yeah, nothing is reactionary when there's a strategy in place because even the simple choice of a handrail or doorknob, um, light fixture, materials, everything, 
comes wall graphic, color combination. Everything comes back to the strategy. So when you're asked this door or that door, you're like, well, this door is the appropriate one because it supports the strategies. And so even the you're not going into the details, which often, especially in, in younger designers, suck you in and you get hyper-focused on this small thing and forget the holistic view. And maybe that's that's maybe what I've always wanted to do or the way I've always practiced is I've always stepped back and taken like the 30,000 foot view and then gone down to the 10,000 and then the 3,000 and then the 1,000 and then the 100 foot, mm-hmm. you know, and like dialed it in. Um, because once you are up here, it allows you to see how it's going to trickle down into all the other decisions that you make. And and I think it does support what you're talking earlier about is it gives you that confidence mm-hmm. um, because you can point to how the decision came about um, versus it just sort of being like, well, I like the color blue. Right. <laughs> and and that, that can't be evidence when you're dealing with a $2 million project. Right. Instead... If you've gone through that sense of, of strategy or decision making, you can point and have confidence. Uh, something I, I tell my students a lot is design reduces risk. And I think the, the flip side of that is design provides confidence in that decision making, especially when you're talking about these spaces that you're making these decisions before the space might exist. Mm-hmm. So there is a leap of faith in that what you're designing is going to work out. Um, and so the more confidence that you can instill in the project, the easier it's going to be to talk about it. The easier it's going to be to convince somebody to throw the money at the project, right? Yeah, and I like what you said. Design reduces risk. But I think strategy allows you to be risk-taking too because within the guardrails, you can maybe suggest something that might not be – um, as commonplace, but because the strategy is encouraging it. For example, when I first did the light research, the majority of uh, color temperature of light that's being installed everywhere is 3,000, 3,500 Kelvin temperature. Very warm light. Incandescent, for reference, is like 2,700. <clears throat> so the research found out that 4,000 was actually universal for both generations, Um across all four physical space and material palettes that we were exploring. So that meant you could take this risk of applying 4,000 Kelvin in any space, not just workplace where you're trying to get higher productivity, but any space. And that might seem risky, but the research is backing it up. And so it's uncommon. Yeah, unfamiliar. Unfamiliar. Right. And so it is kind of risky. Well, it might seem risky, but it's actually not because you have the science to back it up. It's unfamiliar, uncomfortable um, in a decision making setting because it's unusual. Uh But but you can have confidence in in those decisions that push the boundaries or or seemingly do. Right. And and even another example is like, um, like I said, the color of the year for this year just came out and um, the space I'm designing, I selected a textile back in April, <clears throat> nine months ago. And oddly enough, it was the exact color family as the Pantone color of the year. I obviously didn't know that, but that goes back to understanding history and looking at the last five years 
of the evolution of neutral colors and the warmth that's being brought in. And that even ties back to rose gold and pink and this pink undertone and pink being accepted into other spaces that I could say, you know what, I'm actually going to look at this peachy pink sand desert sunset color and I think it's going to complement the scarlet and the red orange that we're using and the dark burgundy in the space um, as a neutral with the warm undertones of the other. And then we got the furniture, it's installed and Pantone color came out a week after the furniture arrived. And so we're like, nailed it you know and it's just like a happy coincidence but it's not really a coincidence because yeah. it's built on a thoughtful intentional strategic evolutionary historical development yeah so how do you how do you teach that strategy in the classroom it sounds like a lot it, <laughs> it sounds like a lot to understand the full history of every color and all of these <laughs> other trends and movements and designers of the past um, coupled with the requirements and issues directly related to a specific project or a homework assignment or an in-class studio. How do you we give students a way into all of that? We teach curiosity, inquisition, and research. And I think it's it's not about that one color history, right? Like I write that into a project prompt. And so they're getting an understanding of how I'm thinking about color in the project description um, on the assignment where they're actually not doing color forecasting, but they are doing trend forecasting. And so I think for me, curriculum is a scaffolding. And so if I want students to be able to think this way, then we plant the seeds early on and we continue to build it. The same is true for sustainability. So we'll introduce ideas in the second year uh, curriculum, like in the materials and methods class, I, I teach trend forecasting. And then that translates into a design implementation. Um, but they're also looking at it like, so we teach what that is and there is method to it. You're looking at technology and these different buckets. You're looking at art, fashion, design, materials, technology, culture, society, economics, there's these buckets. And as you research and look at those buckets today, then you're looking at, I ask the students, because they're the emerging generations, to then reflect on their own values and the world that they want to see and filter what they're seeing today in those buckets through their own filtration to develop a forecast for the future. And so that's one method of doing it. So we're implanting that early on on one assignment. So that way then they can get to another class and now we're gonna talk about color theory and now we're gonna layer that in and talk about it's how it's done historically. And oh, didn't that reflect something we just talked about in that other assignment? So it's this constant build up and like planting of these seeds that we're reinforcing. And then you jump to my retail studio which is really where a lot of this method comes from. And I think about like a visual positioning board and a VP visual positioning board is not a mood board. It's not an inspiration board. Both are valid. They're just different. And a visual positioning board comes from, again, positioning, strategic, intentional, filtered. So you're only selecting a single image to represent one of the buckets. And so in a visual positioning board, it's building off of the four Ps of marketing and then into the six Ps, total six Ps or seven Ps of retail. 
And then I've layered in my own three P's of sustainable design into that so that there is a image in your composition that represents planet and product life cycle analysis and purpose as well as people and place and price and promotion and projection um, and product and all the other P's so that there's an image for each one and you've very intentionally selected from hundreds of images the one that's going to show up on the board so that's how it's like it's a process of filtration it's a process of dumping and getting all of the ideas out and then filtering it back through to select the ones that are right and that happens because you've also done at the same time interviews and with the clients and the end users and you've taken the insights from the users and analyzed it you've also been doing the secondary research and like pulling things in and so it helps you select those specific images so that's one tool of a, a whole series of tools like journey diagramming and touch point diagramming where you're looking at digital physical and human touch points and so in the classroom specifically in the retail studio but to some degree in the others, you know, I'll introduce a visual positioning board at the second year. And then that way, by the time they come into my elective retail studio, they're, they're familiar with it. And we're teaching them even more nuances to it. And then we're going through and saying, okay, let's talk about touch points. And the touch point diagram I'll use in my junior studio as well. So that they, by the time they come to that advanced studio, they've gotten a, an experience in the in a couple of the tools, and then we're building more tools in. And those all come directly from practice, things that I've done in firms that firms still do today. Um, And I think it's important as an educator to stay on the pulse of that, and um, whether it's consulting or working with or bringing them into the classroom too. The um, visual positioning board, the image, I'm curious, is that something that is found, made, or generated? Found, made, or generated. Are you asking students to stage a photograph and make it? Um, is it ah. sort of internet searching? No. Or have you incorporated in AI and generative making into what that image is? No, but I think the AI could be an interesting evolution of the VP. I've not broached that yet, but that could be fascinating. Um, so what has it historically been? It's been historically looking and searching for images on the internet, magazines, et cetera, um, collecting a bunch of imagery and then filtering it down to the one that's correct and then potentially even Photoshopping it to make it better. So there's instances where you might be taking an image and you're like, actually, I'm going to Photoshop four chairs around a table and I'm going to take the, the four chairs that I want because I couldn't find an image of a farm table with four different chairs around it to show this ec- eclectic approach. And again, that goes back to the words. The words come from the strategies, right? I said eclectic. Well, if the intention is not eclectic and it's uniformity, then the table's going to look very different. It's going to be a uniform table, not a live edge table. It's going to be a uniform farm table that's not rusticated and clean. And then it's going to have all the same chairs all the way around it that maybe even look exactly like the table. And that's uniform. Versus eclectic might be four different chairs in shape or form, but it also might be four different colors or upholstery. Um, it depends on the layer of or level of eclectic, eclectic quality that you're trying to dial up or down. So it's a 
early representation of the words. Yeah. Yeah, the attributes. And the attributes come from, um, well, we're going to get another tool. Um, we call it typically a brand filter. And so you have the brand essence or concept statement at the heart. And then you go into from that. It's like a, it's a word cloud or a mind map. You start with a phrase or a poem. And so, and again, another example is I teach that tool in another class, uh, in the materials class, where I give them a haiku and you have three stanzas and you need to extrapolate the emotional responses, the meaning of the haiku, the attributes, the qualities. Um, the reactions to it, and then from that, choose materials that reflect those attributes to create a composition. Well, that's essentially creating a visual positioning board. In retail studio, we go from what is the brand essence at the heart, and then what are the brand attributes, and then what are the experience attributes. So how does the concept or mission or purpose, what is the pulse, the heart, the North Star say, and then what are the words that represent that? And then we translate that all into visuals. And so it's like you can't have the visual positioning board without the other. And you can't have them without thinking about the P. You know, it's like all this stuff. These are just tools to help you, again, create strategic approach. And is this, um, I'm interested in the haiku. Is that sort of a, a classroom version of being able to take what a client or a customer's telling you. Totally. And being able to sort of take something that feels a little cryptic because people oftentimes are have yep. difficulty expressing what it is because they haven't given it the time to sort of think and consider it. And allowing the designer or the student to be able to practice giving application to that. So they're yeah. taking these very sort of fuzzy phrased things and translating them into something that can give meaning and, and start to sort of build what the direction of the project is. Yes. It's interesting because as an educator, right, you're trying to create one, four assignments across one class, for example. And the one we're talking about is the very first assignment I teach. And that project, I give a haiku. And that haiku has been selected. All of them that I give are nature-related. So that I'm infusing and introducing biophilia and need for nature and sustainability without them really being aware of it yet, but that it'll come and build off of that. So that's like a subconscious component mm -hmm. of it. Another is about exactly what you said, is a, a haiku is a essentially their concept statement. And so I'm trying to teach how do you go from concept to the decision-making of a material and what is that process early on. And it's also intended to teach why we think about something like a detail like materials early in the process and how it relates back to concept. Um, and then, of course, it, as you just said, it relates back to clients who throw things out to you that are given to you and you have to respond to them. So they don't get to choose their haiku. They have to design for the one that they pull out of the hat. And so then that, again, is setting the tone of it's not about you. It's about the haiku. It's about the attributes and qualities of it that you're trying to then translate. Yeah, uh, uh, translation was the word that was coming to my mind of yeah. of really the focus of or a lot of the effort seems to be in how well they can translate and switch between sort of the the words or the verbal descriptions into a physical representation of that. Right, and, and that that's the difference between a mood board 
Yes. And which is just like, I like this and I want us to feel like this. And a strategic or a visual positioning board. Um, because the one is more analytical and the other is more emotional. And so as these as students get introduced to these different tools, I, I assume there's an expectation that they're sort of demonstrating how they use them in the projects as the projects grow both year over year, but also mm -hmm. within a, a course. Do students str struggle with this and, and being able to sort of work through these problems? Or, or maybe I'll, I'll rephrase it and say, where do students struggle in this process, thinking about the strategy of the projects, not the projects themselves? Well, I think the important thing is, for example, the first time I introduce these concepts, it's on a project that I say, this is your opportunity to take risk and explore. And if you, so long as you complete the assignment, you're going to get full credit because I'm introducing this really foreign, um, uncomfortable process to you. So you reduce the risk. Right. I reduce the grade risk, which yeah. is what they're used to coming <laughs> out of high school. And so I'm like, okay, you just do the project. You explore it. You push the boundaries. You really like experiment in this and try. You're going to get full credit. So then the following semester when I have them again, they've already learned how to do it. And then now it's like the stakes are higher because they have to do it because it's going to now inform other decisions. So I introduced this idea maybe in the materials class at the end of the second year. And then by the time I have them in the junior year, the following semester back as second, third years, um, they're familiar with it. And now they know, okay, I have to do this thing. And it then is going to inform my decisions I have to make later. Whereas as, as the other, it's a standalone assignment. And then the next one goes on and we, we explore similar things. We might have to create a, a visual positioning board, but it's now for a different type of assignment. So it's kind of individual and not cumulative, whereas a studio, it is cumulative. And so we're taking these risks early on um, where the stakes are lower. And then that way when you're in the studio and it, and it is a semester-long project, um, they've already experimented with it and become comfortable with it. They have familiarity with the tools, so then they yeah. can focus more on the outcome. Right, right. Nice. Again, I think that's a strategic approach to teaching. How do you see it impacting how the students work through their problems? I actually see it as more relatable to them because it lays out, well, in the, in the studio environment, it lays out like due dates and deadlines and it keeps them on track. So it helps with the time management, which is always a struggle um, because I'll say things are due, but they're not really due. It just means that you need to have something completed in the process and this tool completed in order to move to the next tool. And so whether it's the junior studio I just taught that's interior specific or the retail studio, which is multidisciplinary, everyone's engaging in the exact same process and participating no matter the discipline um, and doing these same tools as benchmarks to get us to where we're going. And so I find that that cadence is really helpful in um, the learning environment. And then I also have seen where students, after they've done the class, even though those tools are not required in subsequent courses, are using them to help as well. Because even though it might not be that instructor's process, just like 
for example, another colleague is very big into making, and I might not require students to make, but if that's your strength and you need to visualize and experience something through making, then you need to bring that with you. And the same thing, I think that's what we're all trying to do as educators is introduce tools and ways and methods and process in order for our students to find what works for them. Mm-hmm. And there's no yeah. one right, again, it's gray, It's there's no one right or wrong process. It's just, here's how I approach it, and if it works for you too, or works for your employer, um, then here's some tools you can carry forward. Yeah, absolutely. There are always going to be ones that, tools that you love and tools that you hate. That's just a yeah. personal preference that you're certainly allowed to leverage yeah. um, whatever makes you more efficient in and, your workflow. And that's, again, maybe it's my rebellious spirit, but <laughs> I did that a lot in grad school too. Um, as an architecture graduate student, having an interior design background, there were a lot of things I wanted to do with my interior knowledge that wasn't within the scope of the architecture thesis that I had to do. But I did them anyway because I wanted my project to have that holistic approach to it. And I needed to do those process elements in order for me to get the end result for the architecture that I wanted to marry the interior and be focused on the human. And so there were a lot of times where I had to do extra work and spend extra time, but it's not about the grade. It's again, it's about your portfolio and about representing yourself as a student when you're going out to get a job or representing your firm when you're trying to get additional work, right? So it's about the quality of the work that you're generating as representational of your own value system. Yeah. And I think that's important. Yeah, and that does go back to how can you have that sense of cadence to complete the project, but also still give those opportunities for that curiosity. So that way you're not just producing one type of solution right. or there's not there's not an anticipation towards what your solution is going to l- always look like because you're following the exact same methodology and right. uh, it's creating the same output. Well, but you know, I allowing think that's the tool to have that yeah. variability um, and to be influenced but still being able to complete the task. And I think <laughs> that's what's really interesting is you know, for someone that's never been in a studio environment, we give the same prompt to every student and the same tools to every student throughout their process. And yet the end result is going to be 20 different designs with different materials, different lighting, different whatever it may be. And so, but yet it's the same process, the same tools, the same the prompt. The same kitchen. The same kitchen. Use your yeah, kitchen metaphor. Exactly. Like they're just mixing it differently and making nuanced choices or decisions. Um, So there is still room for creativity, even within a strategic approach. Well, we are getting towards the end of time. These hours move quick. Um, So before we end, though, uh, one final question for you. Okay. Based on what your experience, both as a practitioner and an educator, and blending these two things together, what is one step people can take today to start thinking through design? One step people can take today to start thinking through design. So when I used to teach in foundations, those first couple studios, I would always say to students, you're coming into the studio as a civilian, but you're going to leave this studio as a designer. And you're going to start seeing the world as a designer sees the world. And I think that through that lens, I think that's the one thing I think people could do is be curious as you're seeing the world around you. 
and just start looking at things and being observant and asking when you see something, ask yourself, why is that that way? What is it doing? Um, you know, as a kid myself, I took more pictures of, of things, buildings, spaces, places than I ever did of myself when I was on vacation because I was curious about the, the world around me. And I think whether it's flipping through a fashion magazine, watching the news, um, you know, reading the newspaper, whatever it is, be curious. And that curiosity turns into creativity. Yeah, I like that. Um, observation. It, it really does start with observation. Yep. I, I start a lot of my classes with just five minutes of show and tell because I'm trying to train students to look. Yeah. What did you see this past week? Bring something and talk about something. And think about it. Yeah, and right. make those connections right. that you're talking about. Of, you didn't just of, see it. You saw it and thought about it. You, yeah, the, the observation happens, and then that's followed up with that curiosity piece right. of how does this connect? Right. What's the meaning? What's the value? Um, yep. What's its purpose, right? It's asking the questions, but those really don't come unless you're very intentional about that sense of observation That's first, right. right? Looking, taking pictures. I, I go on hikes a lot and I love taking pictures just of like micro photography or, or zooming in or zooming out to just look for what those patterns are. And I think it's important too, not just to capture the moment, but also just to be in the moment. Yes. Because when you're mindful and in the moment, you're observing things from a total sensory perception and taking things in. And it makes a different impression than just capturing it quickly and moving on. Yeah. And I, and, and the reason I say that is like it made me as you were talking and we were talking about these observations. It made me think of the, the it made me think of the um, TED talk I gave a few years ago about that exact thing. It's like. We can look through the lens, but as soon as we step away from the lens, the sensory infiltration happens and the touch, the smell, the sounds, and our sensory memory, memory becomes engaged and we have a larger, um, longer in, um, memory of it and a bigger impact on us. Mindfulness is a good reminder to let to pay attention to those senses. That's right. And let, let that be a part of the experience to so sort of have in your memory bank so that you can That's right. maybe use someday in the future. Exactly. That's a good place to end. Excellent. Well, Wonderful. with that, I want to thank you, our guest. My pleasure. I also want to thank our listeners. I appreciate your attention, and I hope that this episode has provided you with something to consider. I'm your host, Adam Fromey, and this has been Thinking Through Design. Thinking Through Design is produced by Adam Fromey and recorded in sunny Columbus, Ohio at the College of Arts and Sciences Digital Media Studio in Haggerty Hall on the campus of The Ohio State University. Music is Relax Part One by the effable Paul Nini. I'm Ava Dale. <laughs>